my Asian identity and my trans identity can't be separated. I mean, people can probably pick out one or the other online, but for me, you know, I exist in the world of the Chinese American trans man who's also adopted. We're at a point where we're talking about visibility, where we're also acknowledging that visibility not only saves lives, but it also does endanger lives too. Those who bear the brunt of that, the consequences regarding visibility are black and brown and indigenous trans women and femmes. What might be amazing for one group still has these side effects on another group. There's so much to trans people's lives that is outside of our bodies, outside of what we do or don't do to our bodies. And there's just too much focus on that. Hey everyone, welcome to the Eggnana podcast. I'm your host, Amy Chan. I also produce and edit this podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. And if you have, please leave me a rating and review so I can get your direct feedback. I've had a lot of fun um, interviewing all these guests for you. And I think they really enjoy sharing their stories as well. Um, for this episode, I'm so excited to have Leo Shang with us. Leo is an actor and trans activist who currently stars as Michael Lee in the L Word Generation. Q, which has also been called the L Word Reboot. Welcome to the podcast, Leo. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Um, you know, even as I was scripting the episodes with the questions I had, I wondered to myself, am I emphasizing his trans identity too much? Like, mm. you're a Chinese trans man, and you get that, you get these questions all the time. <laughs> and I know it is who you are, but like, does it ever become a burden? Do you ever feel like, hey, can we look past that now? Or are you very open to being the person that answers all these questions for people who, who have questions about trans folk? It's a really, really good question. Um, and I think that I am very, you know, I'm very aware of the many identities that I hold. Um, there's no way to not be aware of them for me. And Personally, I I enjoy talking about them in the sense that I know on some level it's a form of education, which is a form of labor, and that's never ending. Um, but I also think that there is, you know, a section of humanity that truly is trying to learn, um, and depending on you know the um, how respectful the questions are and. Uh, whether I can feel the intention and the impact also matches that. Um, I feel okay talking about these things, but I also, you know, very much speak for myself and uh, I'm sure I'm that other folks, trans folks, especially other trans folks of color uh, would have very different answers and that's totally okay. And, um, you know, I think that's maybe where some folks might feel overwhelmed or confused, like, well, so-and-so is okay answering this and so-and-so isn't. And those are truths that exist at the same time. And I can see why that might be, make folks feel like it's hard to navigate asking these questions or talking about these identities. Um, and I, I think there's no like way to bypass it. It really is unfortunately a trial and error. And if maybe you say something wrong, it's just like, or uh, uninformed, we just have to um, acknowledge it and keep moving forward. I don't know if it really answers your question, but <laughs> I think that is, is it's just being respectful, having an open mind to learning and not feeling like this person owes you the answer. You know, if that person is not comfortable answering it, please respect that. Um, it's very basic. Let's talk about baby Leo and childhood. You were adopted from China at six months by two women and you grew up in Michigan um, in a predominantly white neighborhood. Bring me back to what a childhood weekend would look like. 
Well, it's kind of an interesting contradiction in a way. The neighborhood I grew up in, I would say, was predominantly white. Um, and the school district I attended, though, was predominantly Black uh, and non-Black people of color. Um, and so I was very much kind of moving between two communities that I didn't really feel completely connected to, but like had a connection to just in the sense of it's where I existed, um, my family and my friends. <laughs> I guess like a childhood weekend. I mean, like I was very much attached to the television and I watched a lot of TV, a lot of um, kind of what's considered classic TV, maybe what other, you know, seven-year-olds weren't watching, like I Love Lucy or like, you know, like Mama's Family, like Vicki Lawrence from the Carol Manette show. Um, and so for me, most days and weekends look like watching movies, watching TV with my parents um, towards uh end of middle school and through high school, you know, I had friends, but I predominantly spent my weekends with my parents. And so we would go to the movie theater um, most weekends. Um, I mean, it definitely fed my my interest in television and film and uh, representation and media. And I, you know, really enjoyed it. I loved spending time with my parents. Um, and I probably spent more time with my parents than a lot of people my age in high school, you know. But I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. What was Lee, little Leo like? Like, what kind of things was he interested in? Aside from TV, I guess, uh, you know, a subsection of my interest in television is really like um, superheroes and action and stuff like that. Um, uh, growing up, my my mom and, and the partner she adopted me with split up when I was five. Um, and they uh, lived eventually five minutes apart. So I would go between... Um, houses every day you know monday wednesday friday and sunday were my mom's days um in terms of like sleep sleep of the house i slept in and tuesday thursday saturdays belonged to her ex um and there were also like very different rules in each house <laughs> um oh, interesting. yeah like i wasn't really allowed to watch anything that was considered violent or had any sort of fighting um at her ex's house um but my parents you know i was allowed to uh, explore various, you know, types of film and movies and watched, got to watch Power Rangers, which is huge for me. Like, me too! At my mom's house, we didn't, <laughs> thank you. Um, at my mom's house, we didn't have cable. Yeah. So we, I was watching reruns Saturday mornings, uh, cause it was ABC kids until 12 PM. And that was, if like, you know, by 12 p.m., people have to are doing things in their day. My parents were like, we're not staying in the house until 12 p.m. So you can watch Power Rangers. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they let me. Sometimes it was fine. But, you know, I I like was I would be devastated when I missed it because it would be it was even then was just reruns. So if I missed a rerun, like I missed the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was a huge part of my childhood. And who was your favorite Power Ranger? It was always the Red Power Ranger because I always very much, I, even if I didn't like the character a whole lot, like I just, I wanted to be the Red Power Ranger. I wanted to be the leader. I wanted to like have a team of folks yeah. that I got to work with. And I just, yeah. And I think, you know, I did this interview um, and we, it was kind of examining like how media, like things like fantasy or, you know, various types of shows and movies and genres if they're like coded as queer, if they shaped our queer identity. And I do think on some level, like my interest in Power Rangers and superheroes, um, predominantly like the, the men or like the masculine ones was probably rooted somewhere in gender, you know, desire and, and um, experience. I always thought the, pow the white Power Ranger got all the cool stuff. Like, wasn't he first the Green Ranger and then he transitioned? Yeah, to like Tommy. <laughs> then he transitioned to this guy who like, he just played mm -hmm. a flute and then this like, 
robot would come out from the waters it's like why does he get all the good stuff then he gets the cool hair the long like surfer hair like i mean i would say it's a white guy thing the redemption arc you know (laughs) he started out as like the evil green ranger then he got to like be the cool nice guy and like they all welcomed him even though he tried to like yeah and he like attacked them so many times when he was supposedly evil and it's like you know what we're you're good now we'll just accept you as our friend (laughs) and so yeah that's, oh my god, Leo, yeah. you read it so deep. For me, I was just like, the the white ring <laughs> all the cool stuff. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you have a very Chinese last name. Is that from like your birth certificate or is that something you chose later on? Do you have a Chinese name? And I would love to know it if you do have one. Yeah. Um, so when I was adopted, um the uh caregivers, I'm not entirely sure the best phrase mm-hmm. for them, like the, the carers at the orphanage I was um being uh, I was staying in or being looked after and um had given us all in my uh adoption class and in, in the nursery names. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's a little complicated in the sense that like um uh I so I was adopted from Hunan, China. Like I was in the city specifically was Yang, Um and with like the last name coming first, we all had our name being E something. Oh. Um, and then mine was E Nian. And I don't know if I am ever truly saying that correctly. Yeah. It's just a peril of not knowing any any Cantonese or Mandarin. Um, <clears throat> and supposedly it meant good year. But when I was adopted, my parents gave me um, uh, an American name. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was my name until I changed it when I was right. 12. Um, I found Leo from the show Charmed, um, and which I stand by, (laughs) I stand by that 13 years later, whatever it is, 12 (laughs) years later. Um, and Shang is actually my middle name. Um, I use it for like, uh, work purposes. Um, my last name is, is my, is my, uh, grandfather's last name and it's, it has Irish origins. And I think it very much confused people sometimes if they saw that name on paper Mm. than saw me, um. And so I really want, when I was looking for a name that fit me, um, I really wanted a name that could be a connection to my heritage and to my, um, my background as far as I could understand it. Um, and <laughs> growing up as, as historically oh God, inaccurate as it might be. Is Mulan, Mulan? <laughs> yeah. Mulan was a huge part of my childhood yeah. because specifically around the gender yeah. playing, like playing with masculinity, right. like that was a way that a lot of people in my class and like in my life kind of were able to make it make sense in a way. Like I was a tomboy and it's like, well, you've seen Mulan. It's kind of like that. Like, was I going off to war in place of my father? No, but I was playing with, like I was getting to feel what masculinity felt like. And obviously Li Shang is her love interest, um, but I didn't want it too obvious. And so I kind of looked at variations um, and one version is spelled with an E and, uh, depending on, I guess, the accent and dialect, it would be Shang or Shang. Um, and it means victory. Um, so my name in a way means lion, is lion and victory. So I say it's victorious lion. Um, but that's, that's how I found, that's how I kind of decided on my, on my middle name. And, uh, it, again, it's really a way for me to feel like I'm honoring part of my, my identity, um, and owning it in a way. I mean, you mentioned, uh, parts of Mulan and that was also a great for me but I think I resonated a lot with Pocahontas more because I was like oh my god there's this like character with long hair that's black mm. um of course I didn't look into the whole John Smith story and you know, colonialism what's <laughs> right, like right when you're six or whatever you're not really yeah yeah but I was like 
I, I'm obsessed with this mm. woman. I want, like, she looks like me. She has long black hair. And I got bed sheets from Sears that were Pocahontas. Like, <laughs> I got, like, work <laughs> folders for school that were Pocahontas. Like, I was obsessed. And then Mulan came out. And then I was like, okay. But then I also kind of felt weird that so many of the music and sort of the characters were mm-hmm. stereotypically mm-hmm. Asian. Like, I didn't realize that. But I just thought, hey, something is yeah. weird. Like, this is not what I learned in Chinese school. Mm. Like, that's not what yeah. we do. So. I didn't really like that movie as much, um, but I definitely love the yeah. songs. No, I, I mean, I completely agree. Um, as Even though I didn't go to Chinese school, I mean, I, I came to learn how inaccurate it was. Um, I think towards middle of high school when um, folks I knew who, like I was getting to know more East Asian folks, specifically Chinese folks. Um, mm-hmm. And they were like, oh God, you watched that? <laughs> I was like, maybe. <laughs> so i mean there's yeah. stuff that 10 years ago that we watch and now it's like that should not have been made ever there's stuff a few years ago that has been made <laughs> that was made that i watch and i'm like oof. yeah yeah so my master's thesis was a piece that followed a person's transition from female to male which also included other folks who had finished their transition and it touched on sort of the niche online communities that help them in their research, you know, during their transition or even create friendships um, in the community. And very similarly, you started your research and discovery of trans representation through YouTube in 2009. Seems like, seems like, what is a decade ago? Um, Talk to me about (laughs) decision to document your transition online. Yeah. Um, it's not something that was immediate for me. Um, I spent so long or it felt like so long simply watching videos of trans men, trans masculine individuals sharing their journeys and their stories and their uh, experiences with medical transition. Um, and for me, it was more so that I wanted those experiences than I wanted to document it. Right. Um, what I remember feeling or what I maybe I think I was feeling was just a desire to have some sort of evidence of my journey for myself. And it just happened that YouTube was an option to do that. Um, I started a channel when I was 14 after a lot of conversations and kind of pleading with my moms to let me, <laughs> you know, they, they were rightfully concerned about, you know, the fact that there are predators yes. and, yep. and people that you just don't want watching videos of teenagers and, and no matter mm-hmm. what. Um, which is understandable. And I, I was trying really hard to understand that. But as a 14 year old too, I was very much, you know, in my, I really want to do this. Like, I feel like I need to do this. Um, mm-hmm. And eventually they let me. Um, and I'd started to upload videos and I watch them now because they're still up because I can't delete them because <laughs> I don't have the login. We must, we must know somebody at YouTube who could just go into their database and do like a delete. I know. But in a way it is kind of nice as embarrassing as they are because again if the purpose was to document something or have some sort of tangible you know um, entry into the void you know i don't have those videos on my computer anymore so i I wouldn't have access to them otherwise um and so i started on youtube and i eventually moved over to tumblr when tumblr was still being used um and i kind of treated it as like a blog I mean, for like two days, I had a blog, but it didn't last very long because I just didn't have the bandwidth to come up with it. But Tumblr is different because it's like you can post, you can also just scroll through. Right. Um, and so I started there and I just, I didn't feel like I was, I was really connecting with anybody, anyone. I, it, I wanted that reciprocity. I wanted to hear from other people. I wanted to connect with people. And I just feel like I was, again, shouting into this void 
of like looking for community and sharing myself. Um, and that's when I turned to Instagram. Um, I'd say 2013 or so, 20, yeah, that must've been when mm-hmm. my, uh, that's when I started really seeing a lot of trans men of color on Instagram mm-hmm. um, and a lot of just trans men, period. Yeah, more visibility <laughs> um, So it that. was a really, it was, it was incredibly validating. Um, and it was like, wow, I found people, you know, and not to say that there weren't trans men of color on YouTube, but I remember being very much like dominated by white trans men, white trans masculine folk. And so this felt very much like I had found a starting point to, you know, to expand Mm -hmm. on. I mean, you have close to 80,000 people following you on Instagram. So, you know, your every story, your every move, your every post and heart of someone else's comment. Um, and you mentioned with Instagram, it's sort of like as the technology changed, the trans community also shifted onto Instagram. Not that they like gave up YouTube because most people do both at the same time. Um, and that's really wonderful that there's like a larger number of BIPOC trans men that were showing up in people's feeds. And maybe it's the communities that they made through like the hashtags or, you know, any, any other groupings of online communities. But how important then is it for queer and trans folk to see successful, happy and thriving versions of themselves? I mean, to me, it's obvious that it is important. And I think like, we're at a point where we're talking about visibility, where we're also acknowledging that visibility not only saves lives, but it also does endanger lives too. Because um, mm. the more that people, you know, as Teek Milan put it so beautifully and so so poignantly in Disclosure, the documentary, he said that the paradox of our representation is that the more that we are seen, the more we are violated. Um, wow. And then Jamie Clayton follows it up by saying that um, the more, you know, our community gains confidence, the more were attacked. And I, I don't think I have the correct wording on her quote, but Teek Milan's quote, uh, it's a little yeah. shorter, so I remember it a little better. Um, and and so I think the conversation has, has been expanding from, uh, from not only, yes, we want to see and need to see positive representation to we want to see this and we also can't ignore the ways and like the potential repercussions that it has. Not to say that it shouldn't be happening, but yeah. it feels irresponsible almost to say that, to, to, to think or to frame things as if like, well, all we need is representation and the people who understand this and we'll be good. When clearly what we're seeing is people seeing us there and being confronted in ways that they've never been confronted about their ideas around gender and patriarchy. Um, and they're feeling threatened. I mean, just, I think was it Monday or Tuesday, three trans women were um, attacked in, um, in Hollywood, um, and they're Eden the Doll, Jocelyn White Rose, and Jocelyn Flawless, um, who are influencers um, and had visibility. And whether or not you know these men knew who they were, um, it speaks. It, it it's very much tied to this idea of visibility and what it means to be seen and understood as a trans person. Um, I know I, I, it might be going off from your question a little bit, but I guess I guess no, we- I love this because it's something <laughs> I never thought about. I always think, you know, it's good that people see people who look like them are like mm-hmm. them. And that brings a lot of positive changes mm-hmm. and, and gives space for these people's stories. But I never thought of the flip side of it. You're right. If somebody who has that hatred for trans people is confronted with this and they're like, these people exist, we don't like them, mm-hmm. then 
possibly mm-hmm. these attacks. I can't believe that it was filmed. Like who would fit? Like, first of all. Yeah. The entire, so- entire, it's like a 20, 30 minute clip video of it. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody helped them. Like nobody crossing the yeah. street was helping. Nobody in that single group was like, we shouldn't even be harming these, regardless if they're, if they're trans people or not. It's like, we shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. to other people. But Leo, that was such a good point that you brought up. And and please continue if you, if you yeah, have to I, say about it. I, I think it's just, you know, it's a, it's a yes and situation. It's a both. It does, it mm. does really great things. It makes people feel seen. It makes people who have been underrepresented for so long feel heard and, and validated. Mm-hmm. And it still does this other terrible thing. Um, and I think too, what, what else something I'm mindful about when I talk about uh, situ- uh, events or um, um, attacks like the one that happened this week is that mm-hmm. for me as well, like I, it's important to condemn the transphobia that was so blatantly occurring and it's hard for me to ignore the fact that this is coming from primarily black men and so that's that's a community issue that i can't really speak on and so there's i mean there's all these moving pieces to these conversations and so you know again with with visibility it would also be i guess uh i'd be remiss to not say that those who bear the brunt of that the consequences regarding visibility are black and brown and indigenous trans women and femmes um and Mm -hmm. so and so you know what might be amazing for one group still has these side effects on another group. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know if that's to say that I have an answer that there is one singular answer, but um, it's, it's definitely a very complicated journey at this idea of visibility because it is important and we do need it. And there are people who are suffering from because of it at the same time. I'm, I'm just curious and you don't have to share if you don't want to, but do you get messages that are like trolling hate messages? Um, sometimes, um, I specifically for being trans or just like in general, <laughs> oh, no. I, for being trans being, you know, cause mm-hmm. I was speaking to a journalist friend, um, or she, she used to work with me in the same newsroom. She is a Muslim woman who wears a hijab. So when she writes a story, her icon is there, um, on the byline and she gets harassed like no other for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it, it yeah. boggles my mind why people would spend time harassing other people. <laughs> yeah, like if um, you don't like it, don't comment. Right, right. Um, I mean, it comes and goes. It definitely comes and goes. Um, at the you know when we were filming season one, um, I was getting not so happy messages on my mm. on my posts, and I would just delete them, or I would and then I would block mm. them, and then people would be mad that I deleted and blocked them. Um, I get. I, especially when I first started sharing my story online, um, more so on Instagram, I was getting pretty gross messages. Um, and, and I mean, I actually was wondering about, about whether to bring this up, but like, you know, I had this whole thing on Twitter and, um, it was, it was a community issue. It was an Asian community discussion. And, um, I, I called out what I felt to be, uh, anti-black sentiments and um, folks who agreed with the original poster, you know, considered my disagreement to be anti-Asian or self-hating Asian. And so like, mm-hmm. it's hard to separate. I mean, these are very, I mean, in a way they're like separate in the sense that like people attack me for being trans and people disagree with me and use really weird arguments for being Asian. Um, and so, yes. And also they are very individual specific uh, um, right. sections of my identity that, that get uh, addressed <laughs> yeah. putting it nicely <sighs> these trolls need to go away they don't belong <laughs> on the internet I wish. um and then sort of 
going off on the same topic, what are some issues that you think trans people face that you don't think is common knowledge? And I think you bring up visibility does not always equal a great thing. There's a flip side to it. Are there any other things that you think people should know about? When we talk about transphobia, often the, I think, I think transphobia is a really important ism, you know, form of prejudice that needs to be talked about. And I think that when it's specifically trans misogyny, then we need to say it's trans misogyny. Um, So trans misogyny for folks who might not know is like specifically transphobia against trans women. And what we're seeing right now in the last year or two, especially on Twitter, is like this new renewed wave of folks who call themselves gender critical. Um, And what it is, though, is essentially, unfortunately, uh, trans misogyny and a lot of cis, predominantly cis women, cis white women, who feel like uh, trans women and trans specifically are like a threat to women and threat to women's spaces. Um, using the same arguments as, you know, why trans young trans people or trans people of all ages shouldn't be allowed to compete on the teams of their genders um, or bathrooms. Um, the, the kind of people that kind of, uh, it's the kind of rhetoric that J.K. Rowling has been using a lot. Um, I was going to bring her up. Yeah, I was yeah, like, it's a J.K. Yeah. Rowling. Yeah. It is. And she, I mean, she's using the same, she's using the exact same language and referring to a lot of the same ideology which is really unfortunate because she has a huge following. And um, I think that, you know, of course, you know, she has a right to do what she's going to do, but it's it with uh, not much uh, regard to how it affects trans people. Um, and so that's something I think that isn't being talked about as much as that when we talk about transphobia, transphobia, we're talking about all of the ways in which transphobia occurs which again, kind of going back to earlier is, you know, it could be confusing or overwhelming for people who don't really know where to start and may not under, may only understand transphobia as like blatant attacks, like the one we've just talked about. Um, but it comes in so many forms. It comes in policy that exclude, um, policies that exclude trans people from healthcare services or uh, schools or bathrooms. It comes in, uh, you know, snide comments on the street. It comes in these attacks and it comes in so many ways. Um, and so I think that's, I guess, I guess a broader idea would just be that, that there's so much to, to trans people's lives that is outside of our bodies, outside of what we do or don't do to our bodies. And there's just too much focus on that. And I wish it expanded. I feel like a lot of issues that trans people face or even queer people, you know, I, one of my best friends is queer. She tells me a lot of things that she has to go through and I'm shocked and saddened because as a straight person I never have to think about those Mm -hmm. things you know she talks about which bathroom should I use she talks about if I go through the airport if they look at my passport are they gonna ask me who I am um if she's traveling in different countries does she feel safe there Mm -hmm. and it makes me so upset to like you know we haven't we have enough troubles in our lives daily as 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 it is but to have that extra layer of like insecure not I wouldn't call it insecurity but just like it's always there for you to think about yeah um it's just really unfair to me um let's move on to something more exciting about your (laughs) acting career Um, because we've talked about a lot about heavy heavy subjects which I think are really important and and I've learned so much Mm -hmm. already through this episode and from you (laughs) so your road to Hollywood happened really by chance, and I kind of love this story. You were doing your master's in social work in 2017, and you took a gap year to do the film Adam. And for that film, you went to Sundance. And when um, 
you were boarding your flight, your agent right now, Genevieve, spotted you and was like, <laughs> call me. So how did that all happen? And then how did you get to the L Word edition? Let's see. I guess I'll start with how I got cast. So I graduated undergrad in 2017 with a degree in sociology, um, which is great. I love studying sociology and also a bachelor's in sociology will only get you so far <laughs> immediately. Um, and so I, I intended to com- complete a master's in social work um, that starting in 2017, of the fall of 2017. Um, and literally about a week before orientation, I checked my Instagram messages um, and I had long since turned off notifications. I had made it so that people had to request um, messaging me because I just couldn't keep up. Um, and I checked in my requests and I was like, oh, okay, this looks interesting. And uh, it was a casting assistant or casting director, forgive me if this person ever listens to this, I don't have their title correct. Um, <laughs> and he was like, hi, uh, I'm casting for this film and we're looking for trans actors to play trans uh, characters. Um, let me know if you're interested and we can you know, get everything to you. you know, something to that effect. And I looked at the date and it was a few days late and I figured, damn, well, I missed it, but on the on the small chance that they were still going for it, I emailed them and I asked uh, about the audition. And they gave me a little background, um, and I they sent me the sides, uh, and I reviewed them, and I just you know I just did it, and then I got I, I met with the director through Skype, and we did it, Reese Reese Ernst, um, and then I was and I feel like within a couple of days I was flying out to New York to audition in person, and I was there for literally maybe like twenty four you know thirty hours, um, and I did the audition and very I think it's I just have a thing about airports you know I was I was bored getting ready to board and Howard one of the producers called me and asked if I wanted to join the film, um, yeah and so I told uh, the program that I was going I needed to defer and. Um, you know, the film was only going to take six weeks, but you can't really start school six weeks late. So um, I deferred. I went to New York. I filmed it. I came back and continued working at the Multicultural Center um, and, you know, got like little little pieces of info updates uh, throughout the year, um, some ADRs. Uh, and then um, and then at some point I was told we were going to Sundance and I was like, holy crap. Uh, and. Um, it was such a thrill. It was such a beautiful experience. I, I brought all the little pins and everything I have around uh, Trans Pride with me. Um, I met Mindy Kaling there. Very cool. Very sweet. Um, you know, she was very sweet, even though she probably was like, I don't know who this person is. Um, very definitely was like that. Um, and it was just, it was such a wild experience. And then I, yeah, I was again in the airport about to board my plane and Genevieve um, came up to me. She was like, oh my gosh, hi, you know, I'm Genevieve. I, uh, represent some of the folks in the film. Here's my card if you ever need anything or ever want to talk. Um, um, I, and I held on to her card. I should say this was all while I had started my first year of the program. So I took a few days off, uh, missed class to go to Sundance and was allowed to write about it for an assignment. Thank God. Worth um, it. Yes. Uh, and then um, I think in March or April, I was told that we were also going to Outfest and New Fest. And I was like, all right, this seems like legit. We're like going to more festivals. I mean, Sundance is legit, but we were like continuously going to festivals. So I called, I, I, uh, I got Genevieve's card out of my wallet and um, I emailed her and I called her and we set up a time to talk and 
she was so sweet and she's so very so very patient with me as somebody who knows absolutely nothing about this industry mm-hmm. uh and you know she we just talked for a little bit and then about a week later she's like you know i i know you're kind of still figuring out what you want to do in regards to acting but this character breakdown just came out and I think you'd be great for it. And so I'm sitting in class and I'm reading it and I see untitled Alward sequel. And I was like, Holy shit, <laughs> uh, <laughs> for showtime. And, um, it was, again, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, I get it. And I, you know, postpone school again, or I, I don't get it. And I just finished school. Like it both seemed like a win-win to me, but I really wanted to do it. I really, really wanted it. And that's how I got the audition. And that's, you know, we, I did self tapes. I went to LA and did a, uh, an in-person audition and I can read with Ari who, who plays Danny, um, and met many of the amazing people who work on the show, um, including the creator and, and the director of 101 and some of the producers and Marjar showrunner. It was like a mix of amazing timing, amazing, um, I don't want to say luck, but you know, just in a way it was luck. And I mm. definitely helped that I had somebody who knew, knew this business. I think access is very much a big piece of how anybody gets roles. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, I, I, got, I found out May 30th uh, and then I moved out July 1st. You mentioned in an interview that you wanted to portray your character, Micah, um, authentically, but not stereotypically. This is so fascinating to me. Uh, what it means. Talk to me about this. Yeah. I mean, early on, too, I had so many questions about Micah. You know, one of my questions was, is, did he grow up in an Asian family? Uh, does he have white parents? Like, that was a really, that, that would have been a big jumping off point for me in terms of like where I can start understanding Micah because. Um, you know, as somebody who didn't grow up in an Asian family, I don't know what that's like. Um, I know what it's like to grow up Asian American. I don't know what it's like to have an Asian American family though. Um, and you know, I didn't know what was happening until I think when we started filming and I found out that he had an Asian family and I don't want to say that like that influenced too much because again, I don't know what that's like. I can't speak to that experience. Um, but I, I do know from people in my life like what a, that there are differences between growing up as like a first gen kid or a second gen or third gen kid. And so that's kind of where I was thinking like, all right, how like Americanized is he? you know And I also very much didn't want it to be a storyline of like, you know, this clear Asian kid comes from a conservative family that doesn't understand him, you know, because we al- always see or it's so often that, see yeah. really reserved and like, like stiff-lipped, like <laughs> Asian families. Shy. It's all yeah, about, exactly. Exactly. It's all about like, even if it's not stated, it's very much about honor and like image and 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 this idea of like being a good child. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I guess, you know, something I always think about when I talk about stereotypes versus um, authentic is like, you know, whether or not his experience represents everyone, it's still an experience. And so in that sense, it's authentic because it's a lived, it's a lived experience. Yes. Um, and I do think I, 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 I don't like to say that stereotypes are rooted in truth. What I say is that stereotypes come from things that have happened and are broad, generally broadly then generalized. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I say I didn't want to play him stereotypically, I don't necessarily mean like with an accent or with any sort of, you know, uh, I guess, behavior traits that, could yeah. be a marker of like again first gen second gen whatever but in the sense of like specifically like uh his job you know he was originally written as a, a scientist at jpl and i remember meeting with marja i was like i think that's really cool and i just worry that that would kind of 
and reinforce this image that Asian characters are always in STEM fields. And whether or not mm-hmm. there are a lot of Asian folks in STEM fields, I think we've seen that. We've seen that so many times over. Um, and so that was another piece of like non-stereotype uh, thinking I wanted to, to, to bring forward. And, right. and, you know, I, and, and I, what I love too is, oh my gosh, Rosalind Chow was incredible to work with just those couple of days. And I remember being so excited when I found out she was playing my mom. And for me, it was so much bigger than just also showing that a mom loves a Chinese mom loves her Chinese trans son. It was for me on a personal level, like Mm -hmm. I had a few lines where I had to call her mom and it was, I had never thought about what it was like to call an Asian, a Chinese woman mom. Mm -hmm. And so it was very personal in a lot of ways and very enlightening. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I think it's something that speaks to a broader behind the scenes thing for me, but (laughs) yeah. No, but you're so thoughtful and I'm so glad you were able to even talk to them about the script because, you know, it's we all we all talk about representation and writing and writing your lived experiences, but there may not be someone like that in the writing room. So I think bravo to you for bring, even bringing that up uh, and to their attention. Leo, where can our listeners find you if they want to connect with you? Um, I am on Instagram, Shang. I am on Twitter, which is a bit more political, hence my many Twitter uh, debates. <laughs> um, and I also have a website, you know, if uh, it's on a, it's just leoshang.com. And, uh, you know, I try to check my Instagram messages. I don't always have the bandwidth to respond, but I, I see them. I love that, you know, you reminded me that your name in Chinese means victorious lion. Oh, it's, it's so cool. I love it because I love how <laughs> Thank you. people grow into their names. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think, no, this has been so great. I think, you know, as, as hopefully what I've expressed too is that my Asian identity and my trans identity can't be separated. I mean, people can probably pick at one or the other online, but for me, you know, I exist in the world as a Chinese American trans man who's also adopted. And so uh, I navigate the world as a Chinese trans man. And and that's, uh, I think, apparent in my politics online and and some of the conversations I have like this. And this has been amazing. And, um, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about too is I know we don't have a a lot of time to go into it, but this idea of like being Asian enough. Um, mm-hmm. And so and so I think what I want to say on that is just kind of, I mentioned earlier that like somebody's lived experience is authentic simply because it's their lived experience. And what I'm coming to realize is my experience is an Asian American experience. Um, and it might not be a capital the <laughs> Asian American experience, <laughs> whatever that means. But um, I really hope that other folks here might have similar kind of feelings of of not not knowing where they fit in in terms of asian american mm-hmm. communities i hope that that's something that you're not they folks know that they're not alone in that um or that that's a, that's an under that's a fair good valid feeling it's valid leo thank you so much for your time i really appreciate you sharing your story and being so honest and vulnerable and just i learned a lot and i'm sure people will also love hearing your story and, and they'll take away learning points as well thank you so much for having me i loved it this was so great 